You're listening to Like Flint Radio, part of the Revelations Radio Network. Well, good morning, Kunjani. This is Cruzy here at Like Flint Radio, and today I have two wonderful people with me. One from up over called Odzi. How are you? <laughs> That's Andy. I'm fine. How are you, Cruzy? Andy. Okay. Okay. Take two. Bonjour. Comment ça va? How are you, Cruzy? <laughs> Stop giggling. You're going to make me laugh now. <laughs> We've got someone. We go he's in Brisbane. Okay. He's also waiting to be introduced. <laughs> I think they speak Aussie there. G'day. I just want to ring up and talk about the cricket. Hello? <laughs> oh, no. It's Edna's husband. None of us. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, speaking of Edna, the last time we recorded, Cruzy put her on hold. Can we find out what's happening there? Do you know, Cruzy? Oh, do, do you think she's still on hold? Well, we can check quickly. All you kids are going away, and this is the only way to go here. And at she's snoring. And Ooh, what was that? <laughs> she's she's, she's snoring. That's, oh, man. That's terrible. <laughs> She must love you. That's all I can say. Shame. Poor, poor lady. <laughs> wow. Yeah, she takes stay on the line to a whole new level. Yeah. For weeks yeah. on end. I wonder who's paying her phone bill. <laughs> that is a, that's I, I a classic to that. way of illustrating uh, the literal. So if you said stay on the line, that's exactly what she's done. Mm. Mm. She did, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, well, that leads us. What, what about idioms where it's not literal? <laughs> that's right. If you say something literally, like, you know, it could be taken, a, you know, a very different way if you, like, if you use the wrong idiom in the wrong situation. Oh, yes. <laughs> All righty. So, this is Like Flint Radio. And you can tell we're having a good time. Welcome to our Flint Flake show. And we're going to go over to our very first Flint Flake. Is that right, G? Yes. We're going to go over to our very first Flint Flake, which is actually your Greek spot. Where we're going to talk about idioms. Well, there you go. What a coincidence. What a coincidence. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. Hello, and welcome to another Greek spot with GK. This time around, I want to share. Something just for the sake of it. And so we're going to be talking about idioms. Now every language uses different expressions and figures of speech. And um, the Kine Greek um, is no different than any other in its use of idioms. Now an idiom is a combination of words that have a figurative meaning. Um, And for the most part an idiom's figurative meaning is quite separate from its literal meaning. A simple way to put it is that an idiom often uses a set of words that have quite nothing to do with its actual meaning. For example, a common idiom in English, and I think this goes across all English-speaking nations, is the idiom, kick the bucket. Now, if you say that to somebody, say from not an English-speaking background, kick the bucket, they might think that you mean 
kick the bucket, but most of us know that it means to die. So um, that's a very basic meaning of an idiom, and that's a, a, a probably a very well-known idiom is to kick the bucket. There's many, many others. Um, you might say it's raining cats and dogs. Well, you don't mean that, you know, cats and dogs are falling out of the sky. You mean that it's, you know, there's a heavy downpour of rain. Or you might say, you know, someone's feeling blue and most of the English-speaking world would understand that that means that, you know, the person is feeling sad. The New Testament uses a number of idioms that the translators have decided to translate in ways that English speakers would understand. And the one I've chosen to highlight in this episode comes from the verse I read at the beginning here. 2 John chapter 1, verse 12. And the idiom is face-to-face and... In English, that means you're going to speak to someone in person when they're when you're present and together. But in 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 the Kine Greek in the New Testament, uh, it's literally mouth to mouth. So um, if you were to read that read that verse literally, when you came to the to that part, you would say stoma prostoma, which is mouth to mouth. But in English, it's translated speak face to face. Um, here's some examples of versions that use that. NIV, it says face-to-face. NASB says face-to-face. I find it interesting that the Message Bible has has this. It says, I hope to be there soon in person and have a heart-to-heart talk. Um, the New King James Version has, I hope to come to you and speak face-to-face. So none of them, and rightfully so, um, translate it mouth to mouth because that would that idiom wouldn't truly make sense in our language. If I were to say to someone, "I want to come and speak to you mouth to mouth," it would mean something totally different. So you can go and look this up for yourself, this idiom for yourself, because um, John uses it again in three John chapter one verse fourteen, and it's not to say that um, the New Testament can't use the term face to face because if we look in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 12 most of you will know this one uh, in the NASB 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 12 reads for now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face now I know in part but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known and that part there where it does say face to face Literally in Greek is prosopon, pros, prosopon, which means face to face. So it's not as though the term face to face isn't used in New Testament Greek because it definitely is. And as we've just seen, it can be used in a very literal sense. Anyway, this has been a very short Greek spot with GK. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope it encourages you to dig deeper into God's word. And until next time, I'd just like to say God bless you, and bye-bye now. Oh, great. Well, I love that. Not only was it short and sweet, but actually it was really interesting to see how, even in the Bible, we can find idioms, especially because you talk about Paul, where he does actually use the proper term for face-to-face, was it? Yeah. So, yeah, I thought that was really, really interesting. Now, I just wanted to do that one really for the sake of it. It was short and sweet, but really I I just felt like sharing that one just for interest's sake. But, hey, moving right along, Mm -hmm. in the last couple Mm -hmm. of days I've been talking to you and Cruzy, Mm -hmm. and it's 
there's been a lot of issues over there with the power outages. What What's going on and are you guys going to disappear any second now? What's happening? <laughs> the day when ESCOM said, let there be no light, um, that was Thursday. Mm. And nobody really had planned for it, and we got to work. Um, I just saw articles on like online news where they were saying they're going to be blackouts. It was going to affect the whole country, and the reason that we were given was because we had flooding up country, and our coal supplies at ESCOM, which is our power supply, um, were wet. It, it all got wet, and so there wasn't enough dry coal um, <laughs> to run our electricity. I'm sorry, I, just, I shouldn't laugh because it wasn't excuse. really a laughing matter. Everyone was really, really fuming. And uh, the rest of the country went to, I think, what they call like a uh, a code two or something. There, there's a proper term for it, but a code two would be like blackouts in their area, maybe once a day, but twice in a week. So that would be like stage two. Um, Cape Town decided to go stage three, where you have blackouts per area within Cape Town, the actual metropole, mm-hmm. and it would be three times a day for two and a half hours each time. So different areas at different times, but it's a lot of outage. Also, what wasn't said at the time was just how long it would take, because nationally they were saying it was just going to be for one day to, I think, 10 o'clock that night. But in Cape Town, what they were saying was it was going to be from Thursday right through to April. So it was very confusing. I was in such a fluster, G will tell you. (laughs) And I was still trying to figure out how I was going to do a whole lot of things because there was just not enough uh, time in the day to actually be able to do all the things where there was electricity available. Thursday night, I actually left the office at 8 in the evening. I got home probably about 20 past 8 thinking, oh my goodness, look, all the lights are on. So I thought, fantastic. At least we'll have, you know, electricity for the evening. Um, As I got inside, I opened the lift door um, and as I opened the lift door, the lights went out. So that was it. So Good timing. I climbed up the stairs, four flights of stairs <laughs> in the dark. And um, yeah, then there was no power for two hours. So it was a fantastic day. <laughs> what happened to you, Cruzy? <laughs> well, I was at work when the power went out the one time. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it, well, it was not so much fun because the people aren't very forgiving in that situation since we play indoor cricket. Mm-hmm. And playing in the dark does not really work that well. So, yeah, but we've got this wonderful new invention that helps us with, with times like these. It's called a candle. It's, 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 it's breakthrough science. Um, I actually bought a few of them. How did that work for indoor cricket? Did it work well? No, no. Cricket by candlelight is not romantic, contrary to popular belief. Anyways, yeah, no, I had a few power interruptions and, uh, and recording part of the show did not go too well. When it comes to electricity, That's funnily right. enough, um, as you will see a bit later, <laughs> yeah, so it, it was a bit, uh, yeah, a bit weird. But in any case, that yeah. was uh, our wonderful electricity supply. Yeah. Um, Welcome to Africa. Yeah. I must say, at least it just lasted one day. I'm very glad for that. Um, I saw they're mm-hmm. threatening to do it again, but so far so good. Until, until it rains again, obviously. Yeah, until, well, they've got flooding up country, so I'm not really sure how long they're going to be able to keep the coal going or drying out the coal. Maybe they should just get a microwave and dry out the coal in a microwave. But there's no power to drive it. <laughs> mm. Oh, I don't know. 
it's just crazy. Anyway, <clears throat> I wonder. I wonder if that joke's going to make the cut. <laughs> I got a great solution to this. <laughs> yes, Dallas. What's it, crazy? <laughs> See, I've, I've got. I've got a solution to the problem. Uh-huh. You know, big parts of South Africa. A lot of people are. You know, they're fitness freaks and they climb on these bicycles that go nowhere. That's right. In the gyms. Yeah. And I say you you hook up those bicycles to the electricity supply and you make them pedal. You know, and give us electricity. That's right. Use it to. Some good use, you know. Mm, yeah, that would be great. Think outside the box. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> sorry, I'm I'm trying to stop being in a silly mood. I'm going to really try hard. Okay, I'm going to be serious from now on. Okay, guys, thanks. <clears throat> no, so, don't. Do <laughs> it's impossible. <laughs> oh we won't let my you. goodness! Now, listen seriously. Talking about electricity and uh, all those kind of things, you've got a very interesting cruisy discernment corner this week. And um, do you, do you want to just let us know a little mm-hmm. bit about that, or do you want to just go straight into it and we can talk about it afterwards? Sorry, were you talking to me there? Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes, um, I titled this The Kundalini Show, and it's uh, all about the Kundalini spirit invading our churches. Mm-hmm. And it's all to do with electricity and some other weird phenomena. Hello guys, it's Cruzy again, and um, as you might have noticed from our intro music, uh, we are dealing with a pretender, or a great pretender here, or what you would call a counterfeit, and from what we have seen in the last few years, is a counterfeit holy spirit, some refer to it as the Kundalini spirit. Now this spirit is, according to what I believe, um, responsible for a lot of the manifestations that you could see at the Toronto Blessing and similar kind of outpourings, as they would call it. Today we're going to have a bit of a look at it and um, compare the Kundalini spirit to the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at a few examples of what's happening in our churches today. This is a bit linked to a lot of the new things that's coming out with yoga coming into the church. It's a bit of a new fad in the church, I suppose. And this is all directly linked with this kundalini or this fake or false holy spirit. Now, I have so many examples and um, I've got so much uh, documentation here that it's it's going to be impossible to really get through all of it. So I'm just going to have to play a few and give you a few of those examples and, and allow you to make up your own mind about this. First of all, we have to ask ourselves, what is Kundalini? Okay, I'm just going to give you a brief explanation of what Kundalini is. Um, Now, at the base of New Age is the pagan worship of other gods and goddesses, and especially the mother goddess Kundalini. Now, the word Kundalini actually means the serpent power. It is a common Hindu belief that within each person resides a serpent coiled tightly up in the base of the spine. Now, through practicing Kundalini Yoga, along with chanting, meditation, or the importation of a guru, one can have their kundalini awakened. Now, by chanting, it's, you know, it sounds very similar to what some people uh, would call tongues today. And the importation, they usually put their hands on your forehead, as can be seen in some churches today, and um, you can have this kundalini awakened. That is called the shaktipat. In any case, the kundalini yoga is called the power yoga. 
in Hinduism. It's the pathway to supernatural power and godhood, according to them. Kundalini yoga can also lead to mental collapse, psychosis and demonization or oppression. Kundalini energy is typically described as a powerful energy source lying dormant in the, in the form of the coiled serpent at the base of the spine. As you awaken this Kundalini, the so-called coiled serpent moves up the spine and certain chakras will be affected. Now there are said to be seven chakras or power points from the base of the spine to the top of your head at certain points in your body. Now this obviously we know is demonic, but that is their beliefs. So when you have this Kundalini awakened, there is certain signs that this Kundalini has been awakened. And I just want to have a look at a few of these signs. This can range from intense feelings of pure bliss, ecstasy, and intervals of tremendous joy, love and peace and compassion. It could be feelings of cold or heat all over the body. It could be intense heat in the spine or a particular chakra, as if a molten metal were flowing down your spine. Striking flows of energy like electricity or internal lightning bolts. Now, I want you to remember that for later. We're going to deal about the feeling of lightning or electricity shooting through your body. A sense of confusion or uncertainty. Inner sounds such as musical instrument, buzzing or roaring or thunder that you feel inside of you. Vibrating, tingling sensations. Weeping, crying and anxiety because childhood traumas are now being healed. Uncontrollable laughing. Very important as well. Got to remember that one. Guidance through inner voices, visions and dreams. Spontaneous vocalization of animal sounds. Who's heard that in the church lately? Muscle twitches and spasms or falling under this power. Just fainting to the ground. Okay, so those were the signs of a Kundalini awakening. Now, just one thing I noticed about these chakra points. Um, two of the chakra points, the chakra on your belly called the solar chakra, that is supposedly your willpower and manipulation chakra. Then you get your chest chakra, which is there by your heart, and it's in charge of your emotion. Now, funnily enough, this is referred to as Astaroth as well. Now, let's just have a look here. The Bible actually speaks about Astaroth. We turn to Judges 10 verse 6. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam and Ashtaroth, and the gods of Syria, and the gods of Sidon, and the gods of Moab, and the gods of the children of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines, and, for, and forsook the Lord, and served him not. In 1 Samuel 7 verse 3, he is also mentioned, And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If you do not return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. Okay, so that's just something interesting I noted. Uh, just remember the gods of the Philistines, you know, they were the offspring of the Nephilim, um, or the Rephaim, as they would call it. But uh, just for interest's sake, the belly chakra and the heart chakra. Let's listen to Rob Bell. And let's just see what he's teaching people in his church. Take one hand, place it upon your belly. Take one hand, place it upon your chest. Let's breathe for a moment, shall we? Take a moment as you breathe deeply to invite the God who made the universe 
extra breath. Hmm. Interesting, right? That's not Christianity. That is Kundalini Yoga. Now, one of these signs that you have awakened this so-called Kundalini spirit is the electric shocks that you feel through your body. Let's listen to Benny Yin. Let's listen to some things that's happening in his church. Interesting, right? Electricity, uncontrollable weeping. That is signs of the Kundalini awakening. That is not the Holy Spirit, I would say. Make up your own minds about that, but I'm pretty convinced. Let's listen to a lady that got got involved in, into Kundalini yoga. Let's listen to her story briefly. So I got involved with yoga. Through the yoga, I had heard about a doctor who works for Swami Rama, founder of the Himalayan Institute in Glenview, Illinois. I went over to the Institute and began taking yoga lessons. 
He motioned for me to stand up and come near him. And as I did, he put his hand on my head. And when he did, I felt this electrical energy just go all over my head, down through my whole body. I couldn't believe it. This man had power. I'd sat in a church all my life, and nobody I knew had power like that. After I received my mantra, I had a dream. In the dream, I saw a dresser with a nativity scene on it. The nativity scene was put in the drawer by this large hand. The drawer was closed. It was as if anything that I'd ever known of Christianity was now being closed away. A Doberman Pinscher came through the door of my room, and as it lunged at me, it, it hit my chest, and the pain from the lunge awoke me. And I lay there in that dark room, and from nowhere, this bolt of electrical current energy grabbed a hold of my whole body, and it began to shake me and shake me, and my breath was just being sucked in and out. From nowhere, this energy left me. And then I saw Swami Rama's face appear at me, and there were lights all around his face, and he was smiling at me. I knew he traveled on the astral plane, for we'd been told that at this five-day seminar. And he was now communicating with me in the spirit world. I'd found God. I'd really reached this other side. I couldn't believe what had happened to me. Okay, so electricity and all that stuff. Um, one thing here, um, if you remember what I started with, um, one of the ways you could awaken this Kundalini is through trance-like states and breathing exercises. Now, in a lot of our churches, we get the kind of music and you know the kind of atmosphere that could lead to the state. And that's why Christians have to be very careful. And I think people that are unsuspecting or non-Christian people in the church are highly at risk at the, with us. One of the guys I think unsuspectingly got involved with the spirits is Todd Bentley. Let's look at a bit of his story. It says here, Bentley says that in two months after being saved, the heavens opened like a bright flash and a white dove materialized out of thin air and flew across the lake to a nearby tree. Although it was a single dove, it sounded like it was flapping wings of 10,000 doves. The noise filled the sky and rumbled in my spirit, the sound of ripping and rushing. The mighty wind filled my ears. As a result, I received not only my tongues, now remember, tongues is one of the signs of a Kundalini awakening, or their version of tongues, but it also gave me imbuement of power from on high for miracles and for signs and wonders. The Bible tells us not to seek after signs. While the power residing in Todd Bentley was so potent that when people visited his house, they got zapped by an invisible electric force field that was in the room. Interesting, right? Then we go to another church. I'm not going to give the name of the church, but... Uh, this pastor is telling his story of how he met the Holy Spirit. He says, The Holy Spirit's hair was not down, but was sticking out with power. Thinking about his hair afterwards, it reminded me of someone sticking his finger in a live electrical outlet. Now, these are all signs of a Kundalini awakening. I don't believe it's got anything to do with the Holy Spirit. We've got to be more careful about these things. Let's look at two more of these signs that uh, you have got your Kundalini awakened, so to speak. That's the uncontrollable laughter and being drunk in the spirit. Uh, we're going to compare what Rodney Howard Brown is saying to Rajneesh. He was a Hindu guru. Now, Rajneesh once wrote, God is not serious. This world 
will not fit with a theological God. Compared to this, Rodney Howard Brown says, One night I was preaching on hell and laughter just hit the whole place. Hmm. Great thing to laugh about, right? <laughs> not really. The more I told people what hell was like, the more they laughed. Now, I cannot see the Holy Spirit invading and being ungentlemanlike when a preacher is preaching, disrupting this meeting with uncontrollable laughter, especially when they're preaching about hell. This is not the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry. Another thing that Rajneesh said is that you should get drunk on the divine. What did Rodney Howard Brown say? We're drinking of that new wine. It's the wine that is divine. It's exactly the same thing they're talking about. Rajneesh was talking about this wine often being passed along with a single touch to his head. Rodney Howard Brown, they've got the same phenomena. We touch people on the head and they get drunk in ecstasy. This is not the Holy Spirit. This is a fake spirit, a counterfeit spirit. Now, this kind of thing, you know, is happening more and more in especially our charismatic and hyper-charismatic type churches, this manifestations, and I'm convinced that this is not the work of the Holy Spirit in most cases. This is the work of a false spirit, a false and counterfeit Holy Spirit. Now, the devil already has a counterfeit Holy Spirit. It's got a counterfeit Christ, which will be the Antichrist, and he is basically a counterfeit God. He wishes to be God, but he can't be God. The job is taken. He's already tried once. It didn't succeed. Christians really have to be more careful in their churches. Now, I don't personally believe that a Christian, a born-again Christian, can be filled with the Spirit. I do believe, however, that unsuspecting non-Christian people in our churches can get filled with the Spirit and have a false conversion experience. Now, this is what we really have to be careful of, and we've got to get this message out. We do not need to run after signs and wonders. The Bible warns us against that, and I think a big part of the reason why we have this problem is just because people are actually running after signs and wonders and manifestations. You can look for verses in the Bible of what the Holy Spirit feels like. There isn't really verses that tells you what the Holy Spirit physically feels like. That's why we have to be very careful. We only have what the Holy Spirit gives us, peace, joy, etc. Not physical manifestations. We really have to be very careful. I'm going to leave you today with a verse from 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that they serve the lie. And that's all from me today, guys. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you in the next show. Bye-bye. because really you've covered a lot of things there. I can tell you've really tried to be very balanced in the way that you presented it. So I think it was really something that we, we needed to put out there for people to go and try and look at it objectively 
and to look at it, you know, from from trying to just go back to the word rather than kind of relying on emotion or feelings, etc. Because if we're going to just do that, I think we really do risk, um, mm-hmm. you know, going astray. Gee, do you have any comments on Cruzy's Corner? Uh, just one question of clarification, if you don't mind, Cruzy. Just at the end there, just so that I'm sure of what you meant, you said something about not being filled with the Spirit. I'm sure you meant the wrong type of Spirit. Is that is that correct? Uh, yes, that's correct. Um, I realized afterwards as well I might have worded it wrong. I was basically referring to not being, uh, as a Christian, not being able to be filled with a different Spirit. That's just my view, but I don't believe Christians can get possessed by another spirit other than the Holy Spirit, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, yes, I was just uh, referring to people that's maybe unsaved, you know, that's in the church that could get this spirit and maybe have a false conversion experience. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that's basically what I meant. Uh, I probably just worded it a bit wrong. No, that's cool. I just wonder. Um, but here's something interesting. Um, I don't know if you guys remember that I spoke about the one chakra being called the Ashtaroth. Mm-hmm. And if you do a little bit of research, and this is maybe a bit of homework that people can do, if you research back, you know, you can almost link this, well, you can link the same spirit, the Ashtaroth, with the goddess Diana, the queen of heaven as well, that the Bible speak of, and, you know, basically the Roman Catholic Mother Mary that they worship. Hmm. Now, if you take that into account, the Catholic Church and the charismatic Church has just uh, made an announcement to be, uh, how can you say, more ecumenical to come together, and they've also, Beth Moore, I know, has just announced some kind of outpouring that's coming to do with the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Yes, is it one of Kenneth Copeland's ministers from South Africa was also talking mm-hmm. along similar lines, wasn't he? Posted that yes. in our group a while back. Uh, and I know the New Ages speak about a great initiation, where they also expect some sort of great, obviously, occult outpouring of a spirit, and this is the same occult spirit that I, that I was speaking about in the clip. And I think that both sides of these two arguments might actually be speaking about the same pouring, but from different views, so to speak. So I think there's something big on the horizon. Keep your eyes open. We are living in the last days. It's very interesting. And it is something that we need to be very sober-minded about, right? Mm, mm. Mm. What do you have to say, Vicky? I just wanted to add to something I said earlier to Cruzy when we were talking about the Catholic and the charismatic movements getting together, the article that I was speaking about comes from Kenneth Copeland's official blog, and I'll, we'll put that up in the show notes because it talks about a, uh, a former director of Kenneth Copeland Ministries. He, he is a South African reverend, and his work within the Catholic Church to do with um, charismatic renewals. So I think I might throw that up into the show notes as well. Okay. But in the show notes as well... I want to include this story, this article, about the rocket cats, rocket cat attacks. <laughs> I'll, I can try it in Afrikaans. Okay. Okay, Afrikaans. Okay, yeah. let's, let's hear it. Okay. All right. Ich bin der Flammenwaffen. Is, is that right? That's German. <laughs> these, are, these Australian guys, you can't take them anywhere. Flammenwaffen. What is that? What is that? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. It's got I something think, to do with I think it. he's saying he's a flamethrower. Yeah. Remember my story that I had the one day about the cow that got ripped <laughs> at the wrong <laughs> side that was running through the fields to set everything? Yeah. He was a flamenwaffen. That's right. He was. 
Yeah, in the early 16th century, a German prince was looking at different ways and ideas of, you know, um, upgrading his artillery. So these guys came up with some ideas, and um, one of it was to, you know, strap rockets to the back of cats and fire them over the walls of, you know, your enemy. Uh, I'll just read you a little bit from the article, and what we'll do is we'll post it in our show notes, and you can go and have a look at the pictures of the rocket cats. Okay. But uh, it, it just reads... You're a 16th century... Oh, by the way, German again, because you said I was speaking German earlier, so... Oh, those Germans. <laughs> You're a 16th century German prince plotting to crush a peasant rebellion. What's this guy looking for a tactical edge to do? Bring on the rocket cats. Fanciful <laughs> illustrations from a circa 1530 manual on artillery and siege warfare seem to show jetpacks strapped to the backs of cats and doves. With the German language text helpfully advising military commanders to use them to set fire to a castle oh. or city which you can't get at otherwise. So there you go. Wow. Plum and buff and ro- mm. rocket cat. So where are they going to get the type of cats of that caliber? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to spoil the whole story. I, I want people to read it. But what part of it goes on to say is what you need to do is you've got to make sure you capture an enemy's cat so that the cat is happy to return to home with the rocket on its back. Because if you capture one of your own cats, you have to blow yourself up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. What were they thinking? But anyway, we'll post that one in the show notes, and um, people can have a look at the pictures of that one. That's almost as clever as the one king that went into battle, and and he told his armorer to make him nice, thick metal armor so that he can't be you know, shot by bows and arrows and so on. So he was on his horse and they went through a river and he fell off his horse and he drowned because he couldn't get up again. Oh, hmm. my goodness. Uh, <laughs> he was too heavy. They couldn't even lift him up quick enough. <laughs> in, in Afrikaans, we've got a term for that called slim fangse boss. And I've got no idea what that means in English. So <laughs> let's just leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say that we are completely off track? I know. So you but, guys but have completely, totally messed up. So you can see up. that that discussion about the rocket cat attacks, <laughs> Andy, leads us to your flint flake this week, which is about a very, very similar thing, the siege of Jerusalem. When Nero had been master of the empire for 13 years, the business of Galba and Otho occupied a year and a half. And then Vespasian, after his dazzling success in the campaigns against the Jews, was proclaimed emperor while still at Judea, after being hailed as imperator by the armies there. He at once set out for Rome, entrusting the war against the Jews to his son Titus. The calamities which at that time overwhelmed the whole nation in every part of the world, the process by which the inhabitants of Judea were driven to the limits of disaster, the thousands and thousands of men of every age who together with women and children perished by the sword, by starvation and by countless other forms of death, the number of Jewish cities besieged and the horrors they endured, especially the terrible and worse than terrible sights that met the eyes of those who sought refuge in Jerusalem itself as an impregnable fortress. The character of the whole war and the detailed events at all its stages, the last scene of all when the abomination of desolation announced by the prophets was set up in the very temple of God, once world-renowned, when it underwent the utter destruction and final dissolution by fire. All this, anyone who wishes can gather in precise detail from the pages of Josephus's history. 
I must draw particular attention to his statement that the people who flock together from all Judea at the time of the Passover feast, and to use his words, were shut up in Jerusalem as if in a prison, totaled nearly three million. Passing over the details of the successive disasters that befell them from the sword and in other ways, I think it necessary to mention only the miseries they suffered from starvation, so that readers of this book may have some knowledge at least of how their crime against the Christ of God, a very little time later, brought on them God's vengeance. Come then, pick up once more Book 5 of Josephus' histories and go through the tragic story of what then happened. For the wealthy, it was just as dangerous to stay in the city as to leave it. For on the pretext that he was a deserter, many a man was killed for the sake of his money. As the famine grew worse, the frenzy of the partisans increased with it, and every day these two terrors strengthened their grip. For as nowhere was their corn to be seen, men broke into houses and ransacked them. If they found some, they maltreated the occupants for saying there was none. If they did not, they suspected them of having hidden it more carefully and tortured them. Proof that they had or had not food was provided by the appearance of the unhappy wretches. If they still had flesh on their bones, they were deemed to have plenty of stores. If they were already reduced to skeletons, they were passed over, for it seemed pointless to dispatch those who were certain to die of starvation before long. Many secretly exchanged their possessions for a measure of corn, wheat if they happened to be rich, barley if they were poor. Then they shut themselves up in the darkest corners of their houses, where some, through extreme hunger, ate their grain as it was, and others made bread, necessity and fear being the only guides. Nowhere was a table laid. They snatched the food from the fire while still uncooked and ate like wolves. The sight of such misery would have brought tears to the eyes, for while the strong had more than enough, the weak were in desperate straits. All human feelings, alas, yield to hunger, of which decency is always the first victim. For when hunger reigns, restraint is abandoned. Thus it was that wives robbed their husbands, children, their fathers, and most horrible of all, mothers their babes, and when their dearest ones were dying in their arms, they did not hesitate to deprive them of the morsels that might have kept them alive. This way of satisfying their hunger did not go unnoticed. Everywhere the partisans were ready to swoop, even on such pickings. Wherever they saw a locked door, they concluded that those within were having a meal, and instantly bursting the door open, they rushed in and hardly stopped short of squeezing their throats to force out the morsels of food. They beat old men who held on to their crusts and tore the hair of women who hid what was in their hands. They showed no pity for the grey hairs or helpless babyhood, but picked up the children as they clung to their precious scraps and dashed them on the floor. Terrible were the methods of torture they devised in their quest for food. Torments horrible even to think about, they inflicted on people to make them admit possession of one loaf or reveal the hiding place of a single handful of barley. It was not that the tormentors were hungry, their actions would have been less barbarous had they sprung from necessity, but rather they were keeping their passions exercised and laying in stores for use in the coming days. The Jews, unable now to leave the city, were deprived of all hope of survival. 
The famine became more intense and devoured whole houses and families. The roofs were covered with women and infants too weak to stand. The streets full of old men already dead. Young men and boys swollen with hunger haunted the squares like ghosts and fell wherever faintness overcame them. To bury their kinsfolk was beyond the strength of the sick, and those who were fit shirked the task because of the number of the dead and uncertainty about their own fate. For many, while burying others, fell dead themselves, and many set out for their graves before their hour struck. Deep silence enfolded the city, and a darkness burdened with death. Everyone, as he breathed his last, fixed his eyes on the temple, turning his back on the partisans he was leaving alive. The latter at first ordered the dead to be buried at public expense, as they could not bear the stench. Later, when this proved impossible, they threw them from the walls into the valleys. When, in the course of his rounds, Titus saw them choked with dead and a putrid stream trickling from under the decomposing bodies, he groaned and, uplifting his hands, called God to witness that this was not his doing. In Book 6 he writes, In the city famine raged, its victims dropping dead in countless numbers, and the horrors were unspeakable. In every home, if the shadow of something to eat was anywhere detected, war broke out, and the best of friends came to grips with each other, snatching away the wretchedest means of support. Not even the dying were believed to be in want. At their last gasp, they were searched by the bandits, in case some of them had food inside their clothes and were feigning death. Open-mouthed with hunger like mad dogs, the desperados stumbled and staggered along, hammering at the doors like drunken men, and in their hapless state, breaking into the same houses two or three times in a single hour. Necessity made them put their teeth into everything. Things not even the filthiest of dumb animals would look at, they picked up and brought themselves to swallow. In the end, they actually devoured belts and shoes and stripped off the leather from their shields and chewed it. Some tried to live on scraps of old hay, for there were people who collected the stalks and sold a tiny bunch for four attic drachmas. But why should I speak of the inanimate things that hunger made them shameless enough to eat? I am now going to relate a deed for which there is no parallel in the annals of Greece or any other country a deed horrible to speak of and incredible to hear. For myself, I am so anxious that future ages should not suspect me of grotesque inventions that I would gladly have passed over this calamity in silence had there not been countless witnesses of my own generation to bear me out. And besides, my country would have little reason to thank me if I drew a veil over the miseries that were so real to her. There was a woman... Mary, the daughter of Eleazar, who lived east of Jordan in the village of Balthazar, house of Hisop. She was of good family and very rich, and had fled with the rest of the population to Jerusalem, where she shared in the horrors of the siege. Most of the property that she had packed up and moved from Perea into the city had been plundered by the party chiefs. The remnants of her treasures and any food she had managed to obtain were being carried off in daily raids by their henchmen. The wretched woman was filled with uncontrollable fury 
and let loose a stream of abuse and curses that enraged the looters against her. When neither resentment nor pity caused anyone to kill her, she grew tired of finding food for others, and whichever way she turned it was almost impossible to find. And while hunger was eating her heart out and rage was consuming her still faster, she yielded to the suggestions of fury and necessity, and in defiance of all natural feeling, laid hands on her own child, a babe at the breast. Poor little mite, she cried, in war, famine and civil strife, why do I keep you alive? With the Romans there is only slavery, even if we are alive when they come. But famine is forestalling slavery, and the partisans are crueler than either. Come, you must be food for me, to the partisans an avenging spirit, and to the world a tale, the only thing left to fill up the measure of Jewish misery. As she spoke she killed her son, then roasted him and ate one half, concealing and saving up the rest. At once the partisans appeared, and sniffing the unholy smell, threatened that if she did not produce what she had prepared, they would kill her on the spot. She replied that she had kept a fine helping for them, and uncovered what was left of her child. They, overcome with instant horror and amazement, could not take their eyes off the sight. But she went on, This child is my own, and the deed is mine too. Help yourselves, I have had my share. Don't be softer than a woman or more tender-hearted than a mother. But if you are squeamish and don't approve of my sacrifice, well, I have eaten half, so you may as well leave me the rest. That was the last straw, and they went away quivering. They had never before shrunk from anything, and did not much like giving up even this food to the mother. From that moment the entire city could think of nothing else but this abomination. Everyone saw the tragedy before his own eyes, and shuddered as if the crime was his. The one desire of the starving was for death. How they envied those who had gone before, seeing or hearing of these appalling horrors. Well, that is Eusebius' account of the siege of Jerusalem, where he focuses mostly on the starvation aspect of what happened. Like he says, there are a number of aspects that he left out, but he just wanted to focus on this because it was just so tragic. And just at the very end there is the story of Mary. She's the daughter of Elazar. And it's a heart-wrenching story. What actually led her to do such a thing is beyond me to, to understand. But before we go any further, let me just welcome back G. G, it's really great to have you to come and discuss the story with us. I'm grateful that you would have me in your flint flake. Thank you very much, Andy. I noticed that Eusebius focuses mainly on the horrific goings-on during the, the siege of Jerusalem, as you've read out there mainly on the starvation and what the people do, the lengths they go to to get food and taking it out of, you know, dying people's hands and other things. And you know how he said that they're even stripping leather from their shields um, right. and, and eating that. They were down to eating, you know, leather or whatever they could mm. get their hands on. But that last part there about Mary where he focuses on that one issue of that wealthy woman, um, that's... Yes really shows the lengths, well, that people were prepared to go to under that pressure and that sort of situation. 
um, even you know some of the most hardened last survivors thought that even that was going too far, even though they were all completely starving and willing to kill yeah. people just to eat. Yeah, it seemed to be the only thing that put them off. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, there they were stealing food out of dying people's mouths. Mm. They were forcing food up from someone who might have just swallowed it. Yeah, um, there are a few little segments, by the way, that I did leave out of the story okay. because it is quite a long reading. Mm. But um, I do encourage you to go back and read it. You can read Eusebius's account, but most of what he's quoting is in fact from Josephus's histories. Right. And so you could probably access either of those sources. But oh my goodness, I mean, you just can't imagine the horrific nature of what they must have been experiencing. On one hand, they are now shut in. There's no water, there's no food. Mm. And what Eusebius was saying there, or what Josephus was saying there, what happens to human beings when we are starving? You know, the lengths that they would go to, to try and just live. It, it is just truly horrific. But there is more to the story now, isn't there, G? Because this story is just focused on the starvation aspect. But is there perhaps a little bit of an introduction to it that we can understand it a bit well, well, better? Well, just to give it a little bit of background, we can say that this took place during what's commonly known as the first Jewish revolt. So the revolt against Rome, okay? Mm -hmm. So that kicked off in about 66 AD and lasted until Masada fell in, in 73 AD. Um, and it began with sort of religious and taxation tension from that to full all-out rebellion. And I know we don't have much time to talk about it, you know, because this is another one of my favourite topics. I love this era and this story. But the Emperor Nero sends his general Vespasian to put the rebellion down. Mm -hmm. And along the way, he captures Josephus because Josephus was a general in the Jewish army. And mm -hmm. he uses Josephus as a translator hmm. in the war effort as they took town after town just before they came up against Jerusalem. Now, during the invasion, Vespasian becomes emperor and his second in command is his son Titus. So he leaves him in control mm -hmm. to finish the job of putting down this rebellion. And one source that I read was that he told his son Titus not to put Jerusalem to siege because he thought it would be too costly in Roman numbers. Did you come across mm. anything like that at all in your research? I didn't. Right. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Okay. I just found that interesting too, because we know that Titus does put Jerusalem under siege. You alluded it to there before about Mary. A lot of the rich people, um, and, and in fact, a lot of people in the surrounding areas did run to Jerusalem to hide behind those massive walls, because they thought that's what, where they would be safest. Um, there was a lot of infighting inside the walls anyway. You know, you could say they sort of bought themselves undone by the infighting that was going on inside as well. And in fact, one of the groups inside did destroy a lot of the food supply. And the thinking behind that was to make the population and the others fight, to force them to fight and repel the Romans. They destroyed mm -hmm. the food supply. So that was another thing that I read that's just, you know, just a terrible act because as... Eusebius explained to us the starvation and death that happened, you know, the old people, the young people, you know, the children and the women just dying in the streets and, you know, yes. bodies littering the streets where the people were too weak to even bury the dead. It came to that point where they were just right. throwing the, the bodies over the wall. Yes. 
I just read this in Wikipedia, actually, just the Siege of Jerusalem mm -hmm. in 70 AD, if you go and have a look at it on mm -hmm. uh, Wikipedia. But they talk about how the actual closing of the city gates and that was where, you know, Jewish pilgrims were allowed yes. into the city to go and yes. celebrate the Passover, yeah. but then they didn't allow them back out again. Yeah. So they basically closed off the gates there. And I think Josephus uh, puts that number at something like 3 million, but I'd have to go and check that out again. Oh. I saw that number. I think that's a bit excessive. That number is probably well above what the reality might have been. But bear in mind that at this point, at the Siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, Josephus is now translating and acting for Titus. And he's also chronicling the events because he is a major historian of the first century. A lot of the stuff that we know about first century Judea and history of the Jews and, and more comes from Josephus. Mm -hmm. So we've got to bear in mind that also he he takes on Vespasian and Titus's family name Flavius. So we've got to bear in mind that some of what he says is probably coloured by that. He would have to be sure. very carefully what he wrote. So a lot of it might be to suit his masters, if I can put it that right. way. Because I right. know at one point I was reading in this reading that, you know, Titus apparently calls out to God and says that this is not of his doing. Mm. Um, I also read somewhere else that Josephus chronicles heroic events um, by Titus during the siege, which really has got nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight, but it just highlights like um, he saved a whole legion single-handedly or something during the siege, which you know we know mm. is a bit much. So I think we have to bear in mind that Josephus is colouring events to suit his masters, as I said earlier. Right. Um, now, that's yeah. not to say that, that it's not a legitimate source that we could get some ideas of what was going on, but I think that's something we have to bear in mind. And therefore, right. since Eusebius is quoting so much of Josephus, I think it's important that we understand that Josephus is with the Romans, if we can just put it that way, even though he had started out fighting against them. So hmm. that's just one thing to, to keep in mind when we're reading a lot of Eusebius stuff where he quotes Josephus. Yes. Wikipedia hmm. seems to talk about him uh, being a negotiator for sure. uh, Titus, obviously. Yeah. And he goes in there and he does negotiations, but he doesn't seem to be getting too far. And there seems yes. to also be a story about how he got wounded by the Jews. Yes. Um, this is Josephus now. Mm -hmm. um, he gets wounded with an arrow and then another sally was launched shortly after. So it seems that he also got wounded in this whole event too. Yes, so he certainly put himself on the line there as well. Yeah. You could also understand that he was probably trying to convince them to surrender for as much their own sake as for his masters, if you know what I'm trying to say. Because um, yes. he could see it was coming. He, he probably foresaw that there was absolutely no hope, but those on the inside would have probably thought that God would be coming to rescue them as well. Mm. Because in that account, a lot of them died facing the temple. Did you read that part? Yes. So I would say a lot of them were looking to God to come and save them. But, yeah. actually, I shouldn't say this because I'm supposed to have listened to it. Did you mention... <laughs> <laughs> Did you mention in your reading about how Eusebius says that the reason for this happening is for their abominable crimes against Christ and his apostles? Yes, good point there, G, because in the reading itself, Eusebius alludes to quite a number of points. One, he's saying that this situation has been caused because of the Jews' treatment towards Jesus and the disciples. Mm. It's like God's mm -hmm. judgment. Mm -hmm. um, he alludes to Matthew 24, 
mm-hmm. quite a lot if you look at the cross-references as well. Mm-hmm. There's also one point where he talks about the abomination of desolation that yeah. gets mentioned also in Matthew yeah. 24. Yeah, now, he does. I know that we probably wouldn't think of it that way, but he certainly, when he was looking, I guess, at the temple burning to the ground, that's what he was reminded of, that particular prophecy of what Jesus said yeah. in Matthew 24. Well, some of it is is accurate. I would say that he's right in some parts there because, you know, we know that in Matthew 24, in the first two verses there, Jesus says about the temple that not one stone would be laid upon another. So it would be, you know, Mm. stripped down bare. So he's right there. But as for the abomination of desolation, and I think he quotes Matthew 24, verse 15, um, Eusebius does, it's definitely an allusion to Daniel 9.27. And some say that this was fulfilled by Antiochus or Antiochus IV Epiphanes in 167 Mm -hmm. BC, where he defiled Mm -hmm. the temple. And we've talked about this before, how the Jews under the Maccabees rose up and threw off the um, Seleucid yoke and rededicated the temple. So that's what we're talking about there. And I see Antiochus IV as a prototype for the Antichrist. That's my humble opinion. And if people want to research him, just go and look up Antiochus or Antiochus IV, and who, by the way, called himself Epiphanes, so God manifest, in other words. So some say that that is a fulfillment of the abomination of desolation when he desecrated the temple in 167 BC. But really, if you read further on, and like I say, I believe he's a prototype of the Antichrist, not the Antichrist. So some say that it's been fulfilled in 70 AD, right, with the destruction of the temple. Um, So like Eusebius does say that that's, you know, the abomination of desolation. And and some people would agree with Eusebius there, you know, with the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And I think that's what Eusebius is saying. But many of us still believe that it refers to a future time. So there are parts of Matthew 24 that refer to a future time where the person that we commonly call the Antichrist comes on the scene and we have the Great Tribulation and, you know, we have like more or less the end of all things. What I would encourage people to do, because we don't have the time here to go into all of that, but uh, I would encourage people to read Matthew 24, also see Mark 13 and Revelation chapter 3 verse 10. But just to sum up, the abomination desolation spoken about there could be that list of three. Okay, so it could be the prototype, as I said, Antiochus four. It could be what Eusebius is talking about with the destruction of the temple. I'm going to say that those two are definitely candidates, but I also think Jesus is referring to a future event that's yet to happen and with, like I said, referred to the person we commonly call the Antichrist. Okay, so we know that it ends with the destruction of the temple and a huge number of those captured are sent off into slavery. Certainly uh, a lot of them are killed Mm -hmm. and it's still another three years till total victory. Like after the siege of Jerusalem, they still had to capture Masada and a few other cities. But I think an interesting thing to note is that eventually Titus becomes emperor after the death of his father. And then his brother Domitian, who persecuted the Christians uh, heavily, you know, in in the 90s and later on, Mm -hmm. he built an arch, um, which we now know as the Arch of Titus, to commemorate the victories of Titus. And the the arch depicts, among other things, um, one of the very few contemporary images of the sacred items from the temple being carried off and um, being carried in procession. And... Mm. 
um, on that arch which still stands in Rome today, just near the Roman Forum, and the arch, I think, it's about 50 feet high, um, I think in about 15 metres tall. And you can go and look this up for yourself, but my son was recently in Rome with some friends, and they saw quite a few things in Rome. But the one thing I asked him to do was to get a photo of the Arch of Titus and to do his best to get me a nice clear shot of the menorah that's there. So I've got some fantastic photos of the Arch of Titus. But what I think we might do is pick the best one um, that shows the menorah and we put that up on our blog for this show. Yeah, we'll put it in the show that notes. sound okay? Yeah, show notes. That mm. would be great. It's a great photo because the menorah itself is in a difficult spot to photograph it's up inside the arch it's not shown on the face mm -hmm. or on the outside mm -hmm. so he really took his time and you know did some leaning and, and some really great angles to get this great shot well there you go Andy's segment from Eusebius the siege of Jerusalem mm -hmm. Cliff you have thoughts on that the siege of Jerusalem yeah yeah really a rather interesting little piece of uh, history there uh, mm -hmm. It was Titus, I guess it was, that uh, dismantled the whole city. The book, uh, My Simon Sebag, uh, Montefiore, about Jerusalem, uh, mm -hmm. has a really graphic description of the whole process. It's just incredible. One of the things that kind of interested me about uh, the whole thing was that when uh, the Jewish factions got the Romans chased off, they turned in on each other. Yes. And yeah. they started a, really a reign of terror. Yeah, uh, that really didn't help their cause any at all, and uh, made uh, Titus's job not only easier but also uh, more justified. Hmm. So I find that really interesting to think about. You know, I I kind of ponder it. There's a kind of a, a wave of evil that kind of wafts through, hmm. and uh, it, it underscores exactly what Jesus was saying that they would uh, reject him and take another one coming in his own name and uh, things like this, you know. Just, there's just so many of these little little bits and pieces of what he had said. That, and, uh, and I think I did mention it earlier too, Cliff, about the fact that one of the factions even destroyed the resources so that the other, oh, so yeah. that everyone would have, they would be forced to fight, which I think is terrible. But well, yeah. Cliff, since we've got you on, on the line, would you be able to give us a bit of update what's happening in Turkey at the moment? Because what we're reading here may not be what's happening there, so... Before we go into your segment, could you just give us a, a bit of an update on what's happening? Sure. Uh, the, the, well, there's been a lot of developments since uh, actually December, and that's when uh, Fatili Gulen, the uh, the religious leader who's in uh, Philadelphia, uh, mm -hmm. the USA, started fighting back. And he knows where all the bodies are buried. So one of the things that Mr. Erdogan was uh, actually very remiss and not thinking too much about was how much uh, he had been reliant on Gillan, despite the fact that he secretly has hated him. One of the things about Gillan, okay, uh, he, he went into exile uh, probably around 2002, about the time they took power, and everybody thought that he left the country here to get away from the Social Democrats and the, the Kamalist parties and stuff, you know, the MHP and the CHP. And the military, you know, they thought that maybe that might have been another thing, you know, the Grey Wolves even. And it turns out that he didn't go away for them. He went away because he was afraid of Erdogan. That was kind of a wake-up call for a lot of people. It, it kind of smacked me in the face, too. It's like, 
wow, I, it's been air under my nose all this time and I didn't realize it. And so that revelation has been a, a rather startling one. And it explains why uh, Erdogan keeps saying, come on back, Fatula. Come on, come on. You know, you're, you're welcome here. You know that, right? And he's smiling all the time. He wants him to be a martyr. Yeah. Well, it's too late for that now. He's he's a conspirator, and he he's a closet Christian and everything else now. <laughs> so, so uh, Erdogan's accusations against uh, Gilan are just uh, multiplied. But what what he did, uh, and, and I think most people are aware of the big story that there's a huge corruption scandal here that uh, has been unveiled. And that Erdogan is firing people in the police and the uh, and the prosecution department, the justice, and that's where Yulan has been putting his people for a long time, mostly with Erdogan's cooperation and even consent up until recently. The problem is, is that once once people take power, they don't want to share it, hmm. and yeah. that's the case with Erdogan. He really doesn't want to share it. He likes this yeah this ultimate power and. Uh, that's one of the reasons why he's kind of blowing it now. Uh, up until the last couple of years, I would have considered him probably one of the most savvy politicians I've ever seen. Hmm. But he's coming apart. He's coming apart to see. What, what do you think the feeling is with the average person on the street, Cliff? They're not terribly happy about it. But the, the other parties aren't very strong. So okay. there's a really bad situation here because they very well might elect a party to power that falls apart mm -hmm. right there as opposed to take it. It's a uh, it's really, really treacherous situation. The people and aren't very happy at all. He'll be lucky to come out with the 38% that they have made the announcement that they'd be happy with. Wow. What do you think with the situation in Crimea as well? How will that affect things? I noticed on our news today, they reported that Turkey allowed a United States uh, warship into the Black Sea. So is Turkey picking a side here? Well, he's still a very important member of NATO, and uh, he's, he has to play that card. Now, that's sure. just one thing. So, so yeah. he's going to let the Americans in, even if he's mad at us. He, he's, he's mad at us, but he's also, he's also wanting things. So, right. you know, I mean, he, he, there's no end to the list of things he wants, by the way. So he's going to do whatever bootlicking it takes with Obama to get what he needs. And that's par for course, really. I mean, he really kind of feels he has to. And not only that, uh, at times they've actually gotten along fairly well. But the thing I was alarmed at hearing, it was a few days ago, mm -hmm. was that they had allowed a Russian ship in. Mm. In fact, a couple of Russian uh, warships. They, they had allowed yes. them uh, coming in from the Mediterranean to go up the yeah. Dardanelles. They, they went under the bridge over here. People were talking about it. Because uh, mm. uh, anytime that happens, it's, it's like big talk. And the same has happened with the American boats. Uh, yes, was that I will not be surprised the Turks uh, actually uh, scramble their ships too. Cliff, was it mentioned in the news there about the U.S. warship being allowed through? I didn't hear it from the news. I heard it from people talking. Right. Okay. Yeah. This is what I, I like to talk to you about. These sort of they, they, this, yeah. this is the kind of things that people talk about. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, the, the Bosporus right here. I mean, I go across the Bosporus on a, on a ferry boat usually. And sometimes I see the warships. You know, it's, it's not like a daily thing, though. You know, it's really remarkable when you see them. They're huge, hmm. and uh, and they're they're armed. You, you know, you can see those cannons and stuff on them. It's just like, oh boy, hmm. look at that! It gets your attention.
And if you're going yeah, over yeah. for the bridge, uh, those those stand out, and they give them a wide berth when they go through. You know, there's certain things about people getting too close to military ships and yes, uh, taking right, pictures yeah. and stuff. Yes. So that's a no-no. So when you when you see one of those going through, there's a wide berth on them, yeah. and uh, it's very noteworthy. So that aside, people are talking about what's going on too. I mean. The the Tatars of uh, Crimea are, are Turkic mm-hmm. people. Yes. And they were at one time part of the Ottoman Empire. That's what the Crimean War was all about. So there's a very strong tie uh, in a lot of ways uh, between the Turks and the Crimean Tatars. Uh, it's even very emotional. So there's a, a lot of connections there. And, now, they're, uh, they're an Islamic people, aren't they, Cliff? And, oh, um, yeah, yeah. And have yeah, had mosques in the Crimea for centuries, that'd be correct to say, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, they were part of the Golden Horde right. that Genghis Khan had. Yeah. And they, they subjected the Russians. So they're pretty strong people in history. And, you know, mm. that, that's part of where, where you hear a scratch a Russian and get a Tatar, you know. Wow. Uh, that's where a lot of that comes from. They tend to be blonde-haired, blue-eyed. Wow. Well, maybe just on a little end note, um, mm-hmm. sorry to cut you all short, but I know we've just got to kind of keep this section short. Right. But when you and I were chatting last night, we were just talking about uh, the upcoming referendum because uh, Crimea is going to hold this referendum on the 16th right. of March. And I had seen a report, and I think it was on BBC actually or somewhere somewhere there, where they were just saying that they were expecting most people to vote uh, Russia, um, Mm -hmm. because obviously this referendum is whether to continue to fall under the Ukraine or to fall under Russia. And um, I just wanted you to tell me what you had said, because that was so interesting, because Mm -hmm. it seemed almost the opposite. (laughs) What I'm hearing is the opposite. Mm -hmm. Uh, And between the Turkish uh, papers, uh, the American papers, and... uh, the things that I'm hearing on the street, uh, the uh, the polls are quite otherwise. One of the things that a lot of people uh, fail to take into consideration is the fact that linguistic heritage doesn't necessarily mean that the people there who ethnically and linguistically Russian are necessarily wanting to separate from uh, Ukraine and become part of Russia. They, right. they actually like their independence. Yeah. And that's what I understand is really going on here, that uh, they're, they're looking at 70%, even in Crimea, against the Russians taking over. Hmm. Now, one of the things that I uh, have been taking note of is that it really isn't in Putin's interest to actually pull Crimea away from Ukraine as a territory. Uh, because then he would be saddled with all the expenses taking care of it and everything else. Hmm. It'd probably be more worth his while to leave it in the Ukrainians' hands and just keep his bases there. Uh, it'd be a lot cheaper, definitely more cost-effective. Because hmm. uh, Ukraine doesn't have any means of fighting back against him, hmm. not alone. So what happens next is going to be kind of interesting. And I, I'm afraid that Putin's really shot himself in the foot big time here. He pulled the trigger way too soon. I, I don't think he thought about it enough. And this guy Yanukovych is out. I mean, they don't want him back. Actually, I saw somewhere where they were, um, I think it was Interpol, um, they'd asked Interpol to try and find him. But then I also um, read, I think it was in an Australian paper, that he had had a heart attack. So I don't know if that's true, but that was just something, I think that was about two days ago now. His problem is that he ran an outright kleptocracy. I mean, the, 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 this government is just thievery. And not only that, uh, oh, you wouldn't believe the things I've been hearing from here about the the, the human market. Hmm. Uh, Odessa is a place where a lot of women are kidnapped and they're sent over here. 
Mm-hmm. And then from here, they're sold, you know, to Arabs and the, to the Chinese and to uh, uh, just, you know, just the highest bidder. It's just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Just disgusting, really. And uh, that's been the thing with Odessa for a while now. In fact, all through the Ukraine and through Russia and uh, parts of the Balkans, you know, the human trade's been just, uh, just thriving. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it's done through kidnapping. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of women that don't walk the streets late at night over in Odessa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so yeah. they, they can just get plucked off the street. Mm, that's uh, yeah, when you look at the uh, black markets of different types and, uh, and you know, you, you walk in the areas where they have the street walkers, you find that a lot of them are, are Russian or Ukrainian. Mm. And that's part of the reason why. It's, uh, it's alarming, it's truly mm. alarming. That's why they got rid of him is because he's been ripping them off and treating them like dogs. And they've gotten sick of it. Even the Russian speakers don't like him. So he's toast. Mm-hmm. So now, just in a in a little wrap up, mm-hmm. tell us what all those crazy noises are that are going on because I'm hearing. Uh, <laughs> I mean, are you actually uh, nailing uh, something into the wall while you're chatting to us? Are you trying to be? A He's building an eye. What are you doing there? <laughs> yeah, <I'm building> it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's been raining here too the last few uh-huh. days. Uh, uh, actually, the neighbor, uh, well, well, actually, the landlord, he, he moved into the apartment building, and he, he's working on approving the place, and uh, okay. it's been a, it's been a process. <laughs> and he's been very committed to that cause, hasn't he? Yeah. So, well, 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 the guys that he's hired are really committed, and they they come at six in the morning, <laughs> banging on stuff. I didn't really hear them this morning. Uh, they were banging on the other side. But uh, they they managed to make it around. Well, uh, now they're going to make it around the world because everyone that listens to this podcast <laughs> is going to hear them. Yeah, they're, they're on like the second floor or something, messing around now. They, they've already they've already beaten on my wall enough. They're putting like rebar into the cement and things like that, and they're mm-hmm. they're painting over it, and, uh, you know, touching it up and making sure it's secure. Yeah, uh-huh. they're just reinforcing all the all the walls and stuff. Well, I'm going to suggest. With the sounds of the workmen in the background, let's go to part two of our continuing story of the occult philosophy of the Elizabethan age by Francis Yates. And there is a part three where we wrap it up and bring it all together yet to come. So, but let's just for now enjoy part two. What are you reading this week? What are you reading this week? So anyway, uh, the Renaissance picks up steam in Italy, of course, but it goes from Italy to Germany uh, very quickly uh, because that that is the Holy Roman Empire, uh, Italy and Germany, basically. So there, you know, there, there may be all these little petty fiefdoms and stuff all through there, and it's a real sh- shaky kind of a. Uh, edifice, but the Holy Roman Empire was an entity, uh, and it's still one to be reckoned with at this time. They were fighting against the uh, <laughs> against the Turks over Vienna <laughs> uh, in fifteen seventeen or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, so you know th- this is right. This is center stage of uh, of the whole world, and if you examine what happens with the uh, 
interchanges of ideas between the Kabbalah and the uh, Rosicrucianism and all this, what you see is that uh, England and uh, Germany are coming together and possibly going up against Spain, which is uh, the uh, really the powerhouse of the Habsburgs, who are leading the, the Catholic uh, yeah. Catholic Union, basically. And the French, uh, meanwhile, uh, they're they're playing both sides. Did you know that? Yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah. know who they were? You know who they had a, a had a long term uh, uh, treaty with at that time? No. The Ottoman Turks. <laughs> no kidding. Oh, there you go. They they were they had a big time treaty with the Ottoman Turks all go. through this yeah. time period. Yeah. Because they they uh, well they, they remember we were talking about uh, about how France was trying to take over the papacy when it was on Avignon. Yes. Well, when they lost the papacy in Avignon, the first thing they did is they made a deal with the Turks. <laughs> <laughs> And the people that came up in place of the French as the big Catholic power were the Habsburgs. Right. Yeah. Interesting how that works, isn't it? Is, it? it is. It definitely is, yeah. Oh, yeah. The politics of this just oh, it's just fascinating. I, I just, to no end. Mm. And for a while you had the Huguenots, right, in, yep. in France. Yep. Uh, and, and they were tolerated up until a certain time. Mm-hmm. And that time period was roughly about the time of all the uh, Rosicrucian texts that came out, you know, the, the ones from Andrea. So the timing of all this is really amazing. And and, and this book is actually the second of a, of a trilogy. The first one is uh, Giordano Bruno and the uh, uh, the Hermetic tradition. And that uh, that really does set a lot of the stage for what, what follows. But Bruno wasn't the only one. Uh, now, along the way, is, is it worthy of discussing um, uh, Pico or shall we um, jump straight to Agrippa, who I find fascinating? Uh, Pico really came right after Dante. Yeah. And he his importance can't be underestimated. I mean, you really can't, especially when you're talking about the Christian Kabbalah. Yeah, yeah. Can you, can you flesh that out, out a bit for us and tell us a bit about yeah, sure. who he was? And... Uh, well, P- Pico della Mirandola uh, was um, was a, was a genius. I mean, uh, just like Dante was, and uh, I, I mean, the, the, the history without him would have been so different. And, and Dante, uh, Dante really had been a beacon for the idea of reformation. Don't read too much into that the, to to okay. think that maybe Dante was a proto uh, Protestant. He really wasn't. Right. We can't say what he would have believed if he had been there at the time, but but we can say that he would have at least been along the lines of Erasmus. Uh, we we can we can definitely say that he he definitely had ideas about the way things should be, and and his political thought. From what I when I uh, researched on him, uh, it was really that that the Pope should get out of the uh, business of politics and, and be, be a spiritual leader, and that uh, the the Emperor should take the political lead, and the two together mm-hmm. 
should go forth and present the world with the gospel. Right. And the, the, of course, the downside of it is, uh, you know, it's kind of like uh, conquest. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there, there is a uh, kind of a nastiness to it uh, that uh, yeah. I, I find. A little harder to swallow, even, even though I love Dante. So, but the the idea of uh, of possibly conquering the world in the name of uh, in the name of Jesus, I think, is uh, rather a contradiction. But uh, nonetheless, it, it shows that the ideas of the Dominionists are nothing new. I mean, they they're as old as can be, exactly. and they're probably old Dante. In fact, I'm sure of that. Yeah. I mean, you, you have. You had popes thinking this way. Exactly. So what, what you got is is that uh, that this idea is circulating at the time. There were prophecies about it, uh, all kinds of stuff. And it, it went both ways, both with the Catholic uh, side going one way and the Protestant side going another when, once that had uh, that rift had occurred. And it had a lot to do with the rift itself. I mean, the, the rift itself was apocalyptic. Uh, that, that's why that when uh, when Luther didn't uh, convert the Jews, that he became very angry and turned on the Jews and uh, said the things he did about them, uh, because he was very sure that the, his movement would be the one to do it. The time would end, yeah, yeah, and yeah. so this the apocalypse didn't come, and and he uh, he was angry, he was disappointed, and what he did uh, had terrible consequences. Now I know from talking to you about this book and about this era that Agrippa is important as well. This Henry, Henry Agrippa, who I knew very, 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 yeah, very little about until we started looking into this. Um, can you tell I us about his importance? I in, in... knew about Agrippa mm -hmm. uh, from uh, my occult days, and, uh, mm -hmm. and I, I still have a, his book on occult philosophy. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, it, and it's really a lot of... Uh, a lot of this uh, Kabbalah, in particular, yeah, there are some very questionable things in there, and uh, but there's also a lot of things that I, I think that uh, most people, if they read them, they, they would probably go, "Well, uh, there's nothing wrong with that." One, one of the things about the Christian Kabbalah, okay, um, they use the true name of God. They were also looking for uh, uh, information on the Bible. They were Bible readers, and the Kabbalah opened up the Bible in, in ways that, that they had never uh, read it before, okay? So they were able to get all this, uh, this symbolism from the rabbis and stuff like this. And, and like I say, they, they were making uh, inroads and in, uh, in, in conversions with the Jews with that as well. Well, well, the Jews didn't take that sitting down. They created a new Kabbalah after Pico, because Pico was doing a very uh, effective job of uh, conversion with them. And he also was uh, was pushing for uh, a reformation. And one of the things that Pico came to the realization of was that, that there's an element in the Kabbalah that is not acceptable. And he wrote his... Because uh, he... he it was a really important document for uh, not only humanism, but uh, really also for, for the Catholic. Because he ended up repudiating part of, uh, of what he had learned with it and had backed away. Oration on the Dignity of Man. 
And so he backed away from some of that, uh, but it, but this was still the manif uh, manifesto of the Renaissance. Okay, yeah. The, some some of his uh, affirmations of the Hermetic and uh, Kabbalistic uh, tradition, as it were, um, stayed in, but some of them came out. He started changing his position and started uh, actually really uh, putting the Christian. Uh, Part of his faith first. I mean, it, it, it changed him, and and that's good. I I think it's hard not to like a good old Pico here. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but in response to the uh, the Kabbalah that, that Pico was working with, uh, they they the Luria uh, was in a place Safed. You you know that name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Safed. Yeah, in northern Israel. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that was where the main school of the uh, Kabbalah was. Okay. Yeah. And and a fellow named Luria uh, had uh, had reworked the Kabbalah uh, away from a strictly a Bible oriented kind of thing mm -hmm. to where it was more uh, messianic oriented. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this is this is where you get into the. Uh, the philosophical underpinnings of uh, Shabtai Tzvi. Yes. And the, the false messiah of yes. the Jews in 1666. Yes, what a date, 1666. What a date. That's right. <laughs> and that's where the, all this philosophical basis comes from, mm. is from Luria. And, and with the implosion of his, uh, his people and uh, possible survival of them, by the way, uh, the further uh, ref reforming of the uh, Zohar and uh, uh, the Kabbalah becomes increasingly more strictly Jewish. If you read uh, his his uh, his apologetics for you know uh, himself, uh, I, I I think you would have a hard time pinpointing what it is is wrong with him, it, it, and possibly. And this is something to think about. Possibly it's not him. But it is. there is something wrong with what, what he was working with. So what he was doing, we, we wouldn't label it as witchcraft, Agrippa? I think that there are some things that we'd have to say, Agrippa, you went way too far, and that's probably very close to uh, witchcraft if it isn't. Right. Uh, but at the same time, I, I also think that he... Didn't think he was wrong. Can you can you um, flesh flesh out Agrippa for us a bit? Agrippa was a, uh, a very intelligent man. He was a, a mathematician. Mm -hmm. uh, he was also a philosopher, uh, and he he was a professor. Yeah, and, and he was also a very huge promoter of the Reformation in Germany. So he uh, he was a person that was in the universities promoting a Reformation there. And and he he did a lot of travel around the world. I mean, he uh, he kind of embodied uh, the picture that we get of the Rosicrucian seeker, you know that that he would uh, travel and he would meet people. He would learn here and he'd learn there and he'd learn all kinds of stuff, you know, and just going different places. And he had contacts everywhere. I mean, the, the guy uh, the guy was a people collector, you know. <laughs> Uh, he he knew people, and when they would go back to their home, he'd go visit them. So he he got around quite a bit. I, I understand he came down here uh, to Constantinople uh, at one point. Mm. 
And uh, some people want to want to make it out like there were secret societies uh, behind the grip. I, I I don't see any proof of that. Uh, the the Rosicrucian manifestos had not been written, and I don't believe there were any Rosicrucians in it at that time. <laughs> so, right, right. So yeah, you, you've that, told me uh, that before. You've explained that one to me before. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very skeptical that there was any such organization. That comes later. So I I have the feeling that what what it was was that really Agrippa was a person that just knew people, and he he liked to keep in touch, and that he liked to travel, and he was willing to learn learn from really anybody. I mean he he was he was one of these guys with a very eager mind for learning, and uh, so you know it's hard not to kind of admire the guy, you know. Uh, but some of the things that he writes just give me the creeps. <laughs> be really yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. he's got these seals of uh, in demonology. I mean, you know, is demonology a fair thing to investigate? Well, yes. <laughs> uh, but what he has written there is pretty pretty creepy stuff, and some of it comes comes to an edge there. Well, if you don't mind me asking you, Cliff, um, and I'm sure. Uh, our listeners would be wanting me to ask you this question. Why do you say yes? Why, why is it? Um, why would we want to investigate demonology? Uh, actually, if if you're involved in the uh, uh, any kind of a uh, deliverance ministry, it would be worth your while to know what the entities are like. Right. Okay. That means that it would be helpful to know who you're dealing with, who and what. The angelologies have also been. Uh, uh, to some extent, uh, useful in in a kind of an almost opposite fashion. See that that's that's the kind of thing that you get in here. And when you talk about grimoires, uh, you, you're talking about how-to books on that. Uh, and and, and, uh, and that's one area that I personally wouldn't want to get into because it is a how-to. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now I know that you. And, um, I like I know because we've had our discussions as as friends and i know that you know a lot about that but you you personally wouldn't be uh reading one of those for those specific reasons would you uh grimoire i uh when i was in the occult i read them mm-hmm. yeah but i never one thing i never really got into was ritual magic anyway and and that's really what you're talking about here there will be people listening to this conversation now who will be saying, no, look, there is a definite line. And the line mm-hmm. will be those who are the sons of light and those who are the sons of darkness. And that would define who's who in the spiritual zoo, if I can if I can put it that way. That, uh, that's true. I, I would agree with that idea. But, you know, at the same time, I, 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 I'm glad God is the one who actually makes the final decision here. And, and different times and different places, I think different things are viewed, viewed upon differently. And I think that we, we are walking in an area that's uh, really difficult to put absolutes to. And uh, that said, is there an absolute truth? Oh, absolutely. Uh, at the same time, I, I, I think we need to be aware that there is a, a different, uh, there's a different world. Well, um, you know, the absolutes, you know, um, are going to be those that are found in the scriptures for. Absolutely. 
Yeah. So, <laughs> I, knew, I knew you'd come back with that one. But that, <laughs> yeah. But that which is worth listening for. <laughs> but I knew you'd agree with that. But um, yeah. So I just want people to understand that neither you or I. Yeah, we're we're coming. We're coming from a definitely from a biblical perspective. Uh, exactly, here. and and that's how we're looking at this, and that's why. You know, I just had to ask those couple of questions just so people would understand that, hey, listen, we're not promoting this. We're, we're, yeah. we're looking at this from a, a historical angle to really to get an understanding because um, next time we talk about this topic, um, I, I really want to investigate, um, you know, people like John D and sure. Kelly and D and, um, well, maybe even Elizabeth herself, if we can go that far, Lizzie won. But um, I'm jumping, um, I'm jumping ahead. But um, yeah, maybe uh, we might be able to get get to her. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of people, and uh, the people can can be very fascinating. And uh, I think I think um, you know what will make this very interesting, especially in our next part, will be fleshing out those. Um, uh, those personalities that people will recognise the name John D and and Kelly sure, and, sure. and Elizabeth and even Shakespeare because I know we're going to be talking about sure. Shakespeare as well. Shakespeare is right in the middle. Um, exactly, <laughs> but I, I, I do this all the time. One of the things I, I that uh, people need to keep in mind is that, that with the historical perspective, I mean, there's going to be people we're not going to talk about that actually that that latched on to parts of this that pull it out and people go, oh. That's why you shouldn't do that. Like with Swedenborg. <laughs> yes. You know, Swed- yeah. when Swedenborg came along, yes. a lot of that went with him. This is a good example. And it became really obvious that it had no place it had no place in the true church. Mm. So so the, there's there's a lot of this that hasn't been ironed out at the point in history. And and that's really what I'm trying to drive at is that uh, we're what I'm looking at is finding out or finding this process and and how that dynamic works and through the history. One of the things that we as Christians uh, often don't think about, but probably should more often, is the fact that we, our belief, our faith, is based on the idea that God has acted very clearly in history and that he continues to do so. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, and that this, this is an area that has not probably been properly uh, reviewed in this this manner. And well, I'm dig I'm digging in, <laughs> and I, I have been uh, for a while now, uh, because uh, it, for one thing it's interesting, yeah. but for another thing, it, it is important to understanding who we are. Yeah. And who who we were then, mm. as opposed to who was not with us. All right, that was a great show, guys. Thanks very much. See you next time. Love you all. Y'all come back now. You hear? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Cliff. See you later. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed our show. You can find us on the web at www.lightflintradio.com. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at mail at lightflintradio.com. That's M-A-I-L at lightflintradio.com.